0: Good afternoon, you're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Yohan. Yesterday, Forum Asia, Pusat Komas and Swaram launched a research report titled State of Disruption Assessing the Impact of Malaysia's COVID-19 Laws on Civic Space. Now, the research dives into the events that transpired during the height of the pandemic, especially while Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin was holding the highest office as Prime Minister. And it also dives into how that period has last or left a lasting impact on our civic space and political landscape. Joining me on the show to discuss this is Ilya Bharati Paneer Selvam. He's one of the authors and researchers of this paper. Welcome to the show, Bharati. Thanks for having me on the show. Let's dive into this, Bharati. It's been two years since the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, lockdowns and Mohidin's government. Why is it important for people to discuss and reflect on that period now as far as your research is concerned
1: First of all I also like to contribute this research to my fellow co-authors uh, Laura and Joy from Forum Asia right uh, basically to answer your question right uh, why we are going back again uh, to look back at the pandemic I think it sets a new precedent and it was a condition that most of us probably wouldn't have experienced you know, like a, a, a nationwide or oh, 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 pandemic on a global scale, right? right. So uh, the basically the purpose of the report is to assess the impact of Malaysia's COVID-19 laws on civic space, right? Mm-hmm. As we have known, uh, the parliament was suspended after the proclamation of national emergency and then the streets were not uh, available for people to express, which was we can say that it was widely available uh, during the pre-pandemic period, right? But what we are trying to see is that the pandemic can be treated as a time of crisis, which can be emulated also in the future, right? Not necessarily has to be a pandemic. It can be any form of natural disaster or, you know, climate emergencies uh, hanging over away haze and so on and so forth, right? So what we do want to see is that the current or any future governments to abuse any form of events such as this, you know, the mm-hmm. pandemic or disasters and so on and so forth in the country uh, to proclaim self-asserting conditions to stay in power, right? So what we have seen from that particular period of COVID-19 is that we had the movement control order, orders in place and then, I mean, according to its intensity and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and then we had the national state of emergency from January, 12th January 2021 okay. until... 1st August 2021, right? Mm-hmm. We see that uh, the human rights violations were exacerbated. And, uh, of course, the suspension of parliamentary democracy, right, was all uh, going back again to how Nguyen and his government wants to hold on to the power. Right. Right, And again, the emergency ordinance, legal provisions uh, were overbroad, and, of course, did not meet international human rights standards. Right, so we find that it's very abusive and not in the nature to control the pandemic,
0: yeah, right. So when you look at our nation's political history, how significant of a period was the state of emergency declared by Tanshri Moud Yasin? Um, you know, do you think that many years from now that people will look back as look back at that time as a very sort of dark point in in history? Or do you think it, it soon will be forgotten about?
1: Actually, an interesting question, right? Uh, I think at the beginning of the pandemic and after the Sheraton move, we see that Muhyiddin Yassin was very popular. He had this ABBA line, we, we call it uh, despotic paternalism, basically, right? right? But uh, <clears throat> but this state of emergency, right, happened when his popularity was declining, not only amongst the public, but also amongst his political, uh, sorry, among his um, uh, government members, right? right? So the significance was as much as it was for him to hold on to power. That is the bottom line, right? That was the most apparent observation or interpretation that we can make from the events that unfolded during this particular state of emergency, Right. It mm-hmm. was not like you know in the period where we had the so-called communist insurgency that you want to fight the communists, you know. Right. It, this is not such a situation because <clears throat> when we spoke to our uh participants, you know, from whether the social activists or the Swakam, former SWACAM commissioners, for example, right, they argued that uh this particular state of emergency was to consolidate power and prevent any attempts by removing any oversight of the parliament. Right. right? And the suspension of parliament made it impossible uh, not only to unseat this government, but also to check whether the go- current government still has the majority support. As I said, I think uh, right at the end, uh, just before he resigned and uh, his government was, uh, I mean, the, the entire cabinet uh, resigned, uh, the the, the um, the clashes amongst uh, Perikatan National at that point of time was already visible. Two people had withdrawn their support openly. Zaid Hamidi was claiming that they don't have a role to play uh, in in the increasing number of uh, what you call the uh, cases and right. uh, COVID nineteen cases, so on and so forth. Yeah. So, so this is what we have seen. The significance was to hold on to power. There was right. nothing relevant to the context of the pandemic.
0: Yeah. So, um, you talk about how, you know, there is a, a sort of um, his policies or the policies of the government of that time um, had, you know, made serious damages to c- uh, civic space and, and whatnot. Could you give us some examples of the policies and, and how civic space was impacted because of that?
1: So, uh, not only in terms of policies, right, we see after the state of emergency, for example, the suspension of parliament through executive orders, Right. Uh, it closed the space or the interaction between the public or even the MPs in the parliament. one. And then, um, you know, the tabling of budget, the 2021 budget also was not uh, what you call, it was only obtained a slim majority uh, during that point of time. And uh, the, the amendments to uh, Prevention and Control of Infectious Disease Act 19, 1988, which came into force on 11 March 2021, right? So there were many additional clauses, you know, uh, it allowed for an increased penalties against repeat offenders. But uh, we have seen that uh, the penalties were not consistent across the board. It was different. The amount was different, for example, you know, the compounds and everything. Uh, Anyone infected with COVID 19 or any person suspected of having the disease or contact with that person to wear a tracking device, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it gave powers to the Director General of Health to issue directions for the purpose of preventing or controlling any disease, right? And also, every punishable offense is a seizable offense. Anyone can be arrested, right? Right. Uh, Arrested, arrest, arrest suspected individuals without the need for a warrant. Right. So these amendments were questioned, you know, uh, why you need such an excessive measure to control uh, the people from, uh, you know, uh, infecting uh, the coronavirus, for example. Right. So these are some of the
0: examples. Right. Who would you say was impacted the most by Muhyiddin Yassin's backward policies?
1: So what we have found from our research is that uh, the marginalized communities, especially the refugees, uh, undocumented migrant workers, experienced the worst, right? Uh, First, they were economically affected. Their livelihood was terribly affected. And second, they were also facing uh, xenophobic uh, attacks uh, in real life and also on social media Right, uh, and the social media attack was not only by the general public, but also fueled by the state authorities, right? Uh, by the immigration department, for example, they they released a poster on Twitter and their social media accounts, basically to ask the people to be the eyes and ears of the uh, immigration department. You know, to report them right. and so on. Yeah, right. And uh, in February two thousand twenty-one, right, uh, about A thousand people were deported back to Myanmar, despite the Myanmar military was unleashing violence over the population. Right? Although a court order was there to instruct the government to halt the process, but still uh, they were deported back to Myanmar. So that's one of the things. So uh, what we find also the inconsistency between the home ministry and health ministry, right? Uh, At one point uh, we were, uh, the health ministry wanted to accentuate uh, the vaccination process. But on the other hand, the home ministry, you know, were going around detaining uh, migrant workers, you know, asylum seekers, refugees and so on and so forth. Right. And, uh, it also gave a lot of unfettered powers to the Home Ministry. Like, in that, uh, in that sense, you know, and uh, especially the uh, immigration detention centres experienced a thirty percent overcrowding. But still, detention were uh, sorry, the detentions were happening, uh, and it was also proven that cluster outbreaks happen every time raids happen. Despite so, uh, it was continuing uh, all the time until the pandemic ends. And um, uh, yeah, so from, from, from that uh, aspect, we find that the marginalized group, especially the minorities and refugees, were largely
0: affected. What would you say are some of the long term impact of Muidin Yasin's policies during that period towards democracy and human rights in Malaysia?
1: It sets a precedent that abusive or repressive laws uh, are available out there which can be applied either by creating or utilizing a national crisis or any other dire circumstances, quote-unquote, uh, which justifies this kind of actions, you know. It allows uh, too much power to be invested in a single person or in, uh, to the government authorities or the state apparatuses, you know, uh, to do whatever they want, you know. So, uh, so another thing is that, you know, it even took about two years long to table this welcome findings. It was only tabled... And debated yesterday for the last three days right mm-hmm. on the uh, to the parliament and everything right but we believe that uh or we can see that certain reforms are happening despite uh the damages that was done during my Moanya's period as uh as the prime minister uh but all the path to such reform are taking place right we we can slowly see that, but the political will uh as we pointed out yesterday even during the session, that uh, seems to be very lacking. And often the uncertainties revolving around the current government, you know, due to the partnership between PH and AMNO, is cited, is cited as a reason uh, to undone all the damages, not only by the Mewiden Yassin's policies, you know, but also what we have seen over the last 60 years uh, with the Amnobian government as well, especially in terms of the repressive laws, abusive laws uh, or uh, you know, doing a with small for example or the Section 233, 233 of the CMA for example, or the AUKU even to an extent, you know so these are some low-hanging fruits that we want to see right. uh, removed here
0: Yeah So How would you respond to people who say, you know, Tantri Muhyiddin and his government did what he needed to do to steer this country out of the crisis? Because, you know, you brought up like the fake news law, you brought up, um, you know, the, 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 you know, the him shutting down parliament, the state of uh, the declaration of emergency and, and all of that. Um, but people might say, well, the country was going through the, the pandemic and he needed to do that to get us out of the pandemic. How would you respond to that?
1: We we get that a lot. <laughs> I think uh, I would like to point, point out that uh, from our findings as well, right? Uh, it, it was very strange for Malaysia to declare uh, a national emergency and also to suspend parliament because... Uh, Countries. I mean, it was a global pandemic and almost none of the countries around the world decided to suspend their parliament. So it was a strange concept, very particular to Malaysia. And of course, we have to look back at the socio-political context of what was happening in Malaysia at that point of time, not only the COVID, right, the political turmoil and everything, right. On the other hand, right, it gave a lot of powers to this one sole person, right, Tanshani Mohit at that point of time, right, who was making decisions unchallenged and powers to enact laws that were not debated in the parliament, right. <clears throat> and then we already have few other laws, that were already sufficient, like, for example, the National Security Act, for example, which allowed for the mobilizing of private sector, the military, and other necessary resources through the National Security Council to combat the uh, pandemic. And uh, the PCID Act, even without the amendments, already provides sufficient powers to combat COVID-19. But again, what we want to point out is that the emergency ordinance was definitely excessive, since we already have existing laws and uh, measures uh, that was equally powerful in the context of an ongoing pandemic. So the idea of, uh, or the notion of going back to implement an emergency was nothing but to control, sorry, was nothing but to uh, hold on to power and, uh, and, If we remember correctly, the bottom line of the emergency declaration was to control the COVID-19 infection rate, which never really materialized during that entire uh, period of emergency. It only spiked uh, during that period, if if we can go back and look at the data.
0: Yeah. All right. All right. Let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Ilya Bardi Panir Selvam. He's the author of the paper called um, State of Disruption, Assessing the Impact of Malaysia's COVID-19 Laws on Civic Space. After the break, we discuss how can we move forward? What can we do to improve things? Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Rashan Johan, and on the show with me today is Ilya Bardi Panir Selvam. He's one of the authors of the paper called State of Disruption Assessing the Impact of Malaysia's COVID-19 Laws on Civic Space. Um, and, and we are diving into the, the, the content of this paper and, and what lessons can we learn from the period of um, you know, Tansiri Muidin Yassin's administration, um, the mistakes he made, um, how civic space um, was impacted, and what we can do moving forward. Um, so, Bharati, in your research, you talk about how the events that took place, it doesn't just, it's not just a Malaysian thing. It doesn't just impact Malaysia, but it could impact the stability and, and the state of human rights across ASEAN. Um, what is the link there? Um, how do you make this connection?
1: Yeah. So uh, this was also a part of the research that was happening throughout the Asian, uh, sorry, ASEAN countries as well. Right? So uh, relatively speaking, right, we can see that uh, Malaysia is somehow stable. And uh, provide a much safer environment, right? But with the exception of certain marginalized communities like the LGBTQs, right? What we are seeing from the reports yesterday, right? But what we are seeing is that Malaysia serves on the Human, sorry, UN, UN Human Rights Council for the term 2022 and 2024, right? Uh, which allows Malaysia to set a precedent for ASEAN and the international community, right? Uh, also, the, uh, during this period, we want to underline that there was. Um, uh, uh, massive human rights violation happening uh, in several other ASEAN countries, especially like Myanmar, uh, who was uh, executing a pro-democracy activists at this point of time. But ASEAN never really took a, a stern uh, position or a firm stance on this uh, particular uh, event that were happening, uh, like in what was happening in Myanmar. You know, especially even Malaysia was deporting back, the refugees uh, running away from the political uh, violence over there, right? So what we are seeing is that uh, our current prime minister, right, this call for reforms or the reformacy uh, that underlined his political career, at least after his fallout with Tun Mahathir, right? We want to emphasize uh, prime minister Anwar Ibrahim to champion the essence of human rights, you know, and try to be, a beacon of democracy amongst its neighbors, right? We had the character, uh, what's lacking is obviously the political will, and we hope that can be addressed, uh, especially in this tenure of the current Pakatan Harapan government.
0: You spoke to various civil society organizations and leaders, including the likes of CIJ and Article 19. What were the challenges faced by civil society during this period? How did NGOs and activists adapt to the change in landscape?
1: Yeah, uh, like what we mentioned earlier, right? One is uh, the closure or the suspension of parliament, right? Uh, Diminished any prospect of interaction uh, between. Uh, actors uh, or concerned individuals, you know, any stakeholders to have an interaction with with the policy makers or the lawmakers at the parliament. That's one. Second is, of course, uh, the pandemic itself uh, posed a lot of limitation, right? You can't actively organize people on the grounds and, uh, you know, moving around, conducting uh, uh, conscientizing efforts, you know, awareness campaigns or whatever, right? So that has really limited the space, uh, the civic space, a lot. And in addition to the COVID-19 pandemic, and then we have all this law that went on to criminalise, penalise activists, individuals that were trying to, you know, uh, make suggestions or questioning uh, the act of the government at that point of time. But it did not in any way... um, completely shut down these civil society organizations or activists from reclaiming the civic space, you know. Uh, there were on and off protests were happening, especially after uh, the cases were, uh, sorry, the, 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 the movement control orders were much more relaxed uh, and the vaccinations were already rolling out, you know with a safer uh, protesting measures, you know. Civil disobedience acts, whether online or on the streets, were happening, were organized. And, uh, but not without repercussion law, right? They were questioned or penalized by the police. Uh, uh, like, for example, Tashni was uh, questioned by the police. Um, Heidi uh, Kwa uh, was also questioned by the police, you know. Uh, but uh, another clear example is the Lawan protest law happened right. just before the, uh, Or I believe it played a huge role in the resignation of Tantri Muriden Yassin. It was sustained for a period of time. It managed to gather a lot of uh, voices from different uh, walks of life. And uh, yeah, so it, 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 that, that, that kind of adaptation uh, did happen and it was very successful.
0: Right. So, based on all, all the lessons um, learned while doing this research, um, how do we move forward? Um, what are your recommendations for the current Malaysian government?
1: Yeah, we, we actually listed a lot of recommendations, <laughs> but I want to highlight a certain points. Right. First right? Uh, so To, to recognise the role of civil society and human rights defenders uh, and formulate and implement human rights defenders protection mechanism. Right. Uh, we do want, uh, the government come on or any government or using the state uh, apparatus to come in like a witch hunt, uh, on human rights defender. Right. And the second is to address inequalities and systemic issues such as poverty and health inequity that have been brought to light by the pandemic. And, uh, attend to the concerns raised by contract doctors in the public health care, right? We have seen that during the pandemic that uh, how essential is public health care for the people, right? And uh, their concerns, the concerns raised by contract doctors must be heard and a solution must be uh, devised. And of course, promote transparency and accountability in governance by providing a platform for open dialogue and exchange of ideas between MPs, civil society and communities and uh, also, stay committed to the reform commitments made by the government. So that's that, that's very crucial. Uh, uh, what, what some of the recommendations to the government? Yeah.
0: How big of a role does SUHAKAM play in you know this discussion of civic space and human rights? Um, and what should they do moving forward? Because you have uh, in your paper you also included some recommendations for SUHAKAM.
1: The, the, the rationale is that Swakam is the National Human Rights Institution. Right. And uh, because of that, uh, they have the utmost responsibility in promoting and defending human rights in Malaysia, right? Uh, and they, they are the bridge between the government institutions, the government, and also uh, the civil society actors, the civil society organization activists, the people, the communities, and everyone else, right? So they must play a role as a conciliating body, right? Uh, Where we want them to be proactive, you know, because of their direct access, you know, they can do the visitation, prison visitation, come up with a report, you know, they can table them, can debate, uh, put it into the public domain and everything else, right? But uh, what we are seeing is that, unfortunately, SWAKAM is rolling back on several things uh, which shouldn't be the case. And it must have some, what do you call it, Uh, uh, it has to be a a force to be reckoned, yeah.
0: Right. So... You also have a lot of recommendations for civil society, but one point in particular um, stood out to me. In, In one of your recommendations, you talked about the need for civil society to ensure continuous discussion on race, religion, and royalty. So, I'll focus on race and religion, right? But, you know... Even race and religion is generally seen as taboo topics in Malaysia. That has been like sort of the status quo for the longest time. Um, Governments that come and go will simply say, don't talk about 3R, especially race and religion, just don't talk about it. But why do you think it's important to talk about it instead of, you know, going with the status quo approach, which is just nobody talk about it at all?
1: Yeah, what we mean is that to put out the correct narrative or narrative about race and religion that's applicable uh, with the essence of you know tolerance, acceptance, uh, or the, the, the real essence of uh, idea of religion, for example, uh, because the manipulation of race and religion by various political parties, like various mainstream political parties uh, in Malaysia, right, uh, to to the fact that it has been always used to either to be in political power or to stay in power. So it's also a reason um, why we want the uh, civil societies to bring about the narrative, or at least positive narratives about uh, of the society, uh, 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 how the nation, you know, was formed with the inclusion of uh, uh, all sorts of people, you know, all walks of life. Uh, And also we find that uh, most of the discussions when it revolves around reefs, it's very much centered on Peninsula. We somehow overlook the importance or the significance of uh, uh, the Sabah and Strava communities, the indigenous communities, and so on and so forth. So this must uh, to the main uh what you call the 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 main domain of discussion uh, rather than see it as yeah as i say, as you have pointed out clearly you know oh this is a taboo we shouldn't talk about it that that wouldn't work uh in the current context if not uh we might have a very regressive or a very fascist kind of interpretation of what is race and religion yeah
0: all right. Before we wrap this conversation up, would you have a final message for us?
1: Uh, oh, some of the things. the report. Uh, what we want is that uh, we want the government uh, to take inspiration from it and stay commitment. Uh, sorry, stay committed uh, to the reforms that it has promised, and uh, not to just eschew any other report. You know, we and then we we want. Uh, uh, to move away from a top down approach in formulating policies, you know, people from especially the poorest communities, uh, the marginalized, the vulnerable vulnerable communities must be included in the policy making and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah.
0: Alright, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Ilya Bhardy Panir Selvam. He's one of the authors of State of Disruption, Assessing the Impact of Malaysia's COVID-19 Laws on Civic Space. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, BFM.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast